Chapter One, Part One of The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain by Charles Dickens. Chapter One The Gift Bestowed, Part One. Everybody said so. Far be it from me to assert that what everybody says must be true. Everybody is, often, as likely to be wrong as right. In the general experience, everybody has been wrong so often, and it has taken, in most instances, such a weary while to find out how wrong, that the authority is proved to be fallible. Everybody may sometimes be right, but that's no rule, as the ghost of Giles Scroggins says in the ballad. The dread word, ghost, recalls me. Everybody said he looked like a haunted man. The extent of my present claim for everybody is that they were so far right. He did. Who could have seen his hollow cheek, his sunken brilliant eye, his black attired figure, indefinably grim, although well-knit and well-proportioned, his grizzled hair hanging, like tangled seaweed, about his face, as if he had been, through his whole life, a lonely mark for the chafing and beating of the great deep of humanity, but might have said he looked like a haunted man. Who could have observed his manner, taciturn, thoughtful, gloomy, shadowed by habitual reserve, retiring always and jocund never, with a distraught air of reverting to a bygone place and time, or of listening to some old echoes in his mind, but might have said it was the manner of a haunted man? Who could have heard his voice, slow-speaking, deep, and grave, with a natural fullness and melody in it which he seemed to set himself against and stop, but might have said it was the voice of a haunted man? Who that had seen him in his inner chamber, part library and part laboratory, for he was, as the world knew, far and wide, a learned man in chemistry, and a teacher on whose lips and hands a crowd of aspiring ears and eyes hung daily? who that had seen him there, upon a winter night, alone, surrounded by his drugs and instruments and books, the shadow of his shaded lamp a monstrous beetle on the wall, motionless among a crowd of spectral shapes raised there by the flickering of the fire upon the quaint objects around him. Some of these phantoms, the reflection of glass vessels that held liquids, trembling at heart like things that knew his power to uncombine them, and to give back their component parts to fire and vapor. Who that had seen him then, his work done, and he pondering in his chair before the rusted grate and red flame, moving his thin mouth as if in speech, but silent as the dead, would not have said that the man seemed haunted and the chamber too. Who might not, by a very easy flight of fancy, have believed that everything about him took this haunted tone, and that he lived on haunted ground? His dwelling was so solitary and vault-like, and old, retired part of an ancient endowment for students, once a brave edifice, planted in an open place, but now the obsolete whim of forgotten architects. Smoke, age, and weather darkened, squeezed on every side by the overgrowing of the great city, and choked, like an old well, with stones and bricks. Its small quadrangles, lying down in very pits formed by the streets and buildings, which, in the course of time, had been constructed above its heavy chimney-stalks. Its old trees, insulted by the neighboring smoke, 
which deigned to droop so low when it was very feeble and the weather very moody, its grass-plots, struggling with the mildewed earth to be grass, were to win any show of compromise. Its silent pavements, unaccustomed to the tread of feet, and even to the observation of eyes, except when a stray face looked down from the upper world, wondering what nook it was. Its sundial in a little bricked-up corner, where no sun had straggled for a hundred years, but where, in compensation for the sun's neglect, the snow would lie for weeks when it lay nowhere else, and a black east wind would spin like a huge humming top, when in all other places it was silent and still. His dwelling, at its heart and core, within doors, at his fireside, was so lowering and old, so crazy, yet so strong, with its worm-eaten beams of wood in the ceiling, and its sturdy floor shelving downward to the great oak chimney-piece, so environed and hemmed in by the pressure of the town yet so remote in fashion, age, and custom, so quiet, yet so thundering with echoes when a distant voice was raised or a door was shut, echoes, not confined to the many low passages and empty rooms, but rumbling and grumbling till they were stifled in the heavy air of the forgotten crypt where the Norman arches were half buried in the earth. You should have seen him in his dwelling about twilight, in the dead winter time. When the wind was blowing, shrill and shrewd, with the going down of the blurred sun, when it was just so dark, as that the forms of things were indistinct and big, but not wholly lost. When sitters by the fire began to see wild faces and figures, mountains and abysses, ambushcades and armies, in the coals. When people in the streets bent down their heads and ran before the weather. When those who were obliged to meet it, were stopped at angry corners, stung by wandering snowflakes alighting on the lashes of their eyes, which fell too sparingly and were blown away too quickly, to leave a trace upon the frozen ground. When windows of private houses closed up tight and warm. When lighted gas began to burst forth in the busy and the quiet streets, fast blackening otherwise. When stray pedestrians, shivering along the ladder, looked down at the glowing fires in kitchens, and sharpened their sharp appetites by sniffing up the fragrance of whole miles of dinners. When travellers by land were bitter cold, and looked wearily on gloomy landscapes, rustling and shuddering in the blast, when mariners at sea, outlying upon icy yards, were tossed and swung above the howling ocean dreadfully, when lighthouses, on rocks and headlands, showed solitary and watchful, and benighted seabirds breasted on against their ponderous lanterns, and fell dead, when little readers of story-books, by the firelight, trembled to think of Cassim Baba cut into quarters, hanging in the robber's cave, or had some small misgivings that the fierce little old woman, with the crutch, who used to start out of the box in the merchant Abdullah's bedroom, might, one of these nights, be found upon the stairs, in the long, cold, dusky journey up to bed. When, in rustic places, the last glimmering of daylight died away from the ends of avenues, and the trees, arching overhead, were sullen and black. When, in parks and woods, the high wet fern and sodden moss, and beds of fallen leaves, and trunks of trees, were lost to view, in masses of impenetrable shade. When mists arose from dyke, and fen, and river. When lights in old halls and in cottage windows, were a cheerful sight. When the mill stopped, the wheelwright and the blacksmith shut their workshops, 
the turnpike gate closed the plough and harrow were left lonely in the fields the labourer and team went home and the striking of the church clock had a deeper sound than at noon and the churchyard wicket would be swung no more that night when twilight everywhere released the shadows prisoned up all day that now closed in and gathered like mustering swarms of ghosts when they stood lowering in corners of rooms and frowned out from behind half-open doors when they had full possession of unoccupied apartments when they danced upon the floors and walls and ceilings of inhabited chambers while the fire was low and withdrew like ebbing waters when it sprang into a blaze when they fantastically mocked the shapes of household objects making the nurse an ogress the rocking-horse a monster the wandering child half scared and half amused a stranger to itself the very tongs upon the hearth a straddling giant with his arms akimbo evidently smelling the blood of englishmen and wanting to grind people's bones to make his bread when these shadows brought into the minds of older people other thoughts and showed them different images when they stole from their retreats in the likenesses of forms and faces from the past from the grave from the deep deep gulf where the things that might have been and never were are always wandering when he sat as already mentioned gazing at the fire when as it rose and fell the shadows went and came when he took no heed of them with his bodily eyes but let them come or let them go looked fixedly at the fire you should have seen him then when the sounds that had arisen with the shadows and come out of their lurking places at the twilight summons seemed to make a deeper stillness all about him when the wind was rumbling in the chimney and sometimes crooning sometimes howling in the house when the old trees outside were so shaken and beaten that one querulous old rook unable to sleep protested now and then in a feeble dozy high up caw when at intervals the window trembled the rusty vane upon the turret-top complained the clock beneath it recorded that another quarter of an hour was gone where the fire collapsed and fell in with a rattle when a knock came at his door in short as he was sitting so and roused him who's that said he come in surely there had been no figure leaning on the back of his chair no face looking over it it is certain that no gliding footstep touched the floor as he lifted up his head with a start and spoke and yet there was no mirror in the room on whose surface his own form could have cast its shadow for a moment and something had passed darkly and gone i'm humbly fearful sir said a fresh-coloured busy man holding the door open with his foot for the admission of himself and a wooden tray he carried and letting it go again by very gentle and careful degrees when he and the tray had got in lest it should close noisily that it's a good bit past the time to-night but mrs william has been taken off her legs so often by the wind ay i have heard it rising by the wind sir that it's a mercy she got home at all oh dear yes yes it was by the wind mr redlaw by the wind he had by this time put down the tray for dinner and was employed in lighting the lamp and spreading a cloth on the table from this employment he desisted in a hurry to stir and feed the fire and then resumed it the lamp he had lighted 
and the blaze that rose under his hand, so quickly changing the appearance of the room, that it seemed as if the mere coming in of his fresh red face and active manner had made the pleasant alteration. Mrs. William is of course subject at any time, sir, to be taken off her balance by the elements. She is not formed superior to that. No, returned Mr. Redlaw good-naturedly, though abruptly. No, sir, Mrs. William may be taken off her balance by earth, as, for example, last Sunday week, when sloppy and greasy, and she going out to tea with her newest sister-in-law, and having a pride in herself, and wishing to appear perfectly spotless though pedestrian, Mrs. William may be taken off her balance by air, as being once over-persuaded by a friend to try a swing at Peckham Fair, which acted on her constitution instantly like a steamboat. Mrs. William may be taken off her balance by fire, as on a false alarm of engines at her mother's, when she went two miles in her nightcap. Mrs. William may be taken off her balance by water, as at Battersea, when rowed into the piers by her young nephew, Charlie Swidger, Jr., aged twelve, who had no idea of boats whatever. But these are elements. Mrs. William must be taken out of elements for the strength of her character to come into play. As he stopped for a reply, the reply was yes, in the same tone as before. Yes, sir, oh dear, yes, said Mr. Swidger, still proceeding with his preparations, and checking them off as he made them. That's where it is, sir. That's what I always say myself, sir. Such a many of us Swidgers. Pepper, why there's my father, sir, superannuated keeper and custodian of this institution, eighty-seven years old. He's a Swidger. Spoon. True, William, was the patient and abstracted answer, when he stopped again. Yes, sir, said Mr. Swidger. That's what I always say, sir. You may call him the trunk of the tree. Bread? When you come to his successor, my unworthy self, salt, and Mrs. William, Swidger's both. Knife and fork. Then you come to all my brothers and their families, Swidger's, man and woman, boy and girl. Why, what with cousins, uncles, aunts, and relationships of this, that, and t'other degree, and what not degree, and marriages, and lyings in, the Swidgers, Tumbler, might take hold of hands, and make a ring round England. Receiving no reply at all here, from the thoughtful man whom he addressed, Mr. William approached him nearer, and made a feint of accidentally knocking the table with a decanter, to rouse him. The moment he succeeded, he went on, as if in great alacrity of acquiescence. Yes, sir, that's just what I say myself, sir. Mrs. William and me have often said so. There's Swidgers enough, we say, without our voluntary contributions. Butter? In fact, sir, my father is a family in himself. Casters? To take care of. And it happens all for the best that we have no child of our own, though it's made Mrs. William rather quiet-like, too. Quite ready for the fowl and mashed potatoes, sir? Mrs. William said she'd dish in ten minutes when I left the lodge. I am quite ready, said the other, waking as from a dream, and walking slowly to and fro. Mrs. William has been at it again, sir, said the keeper, as he stood warming a plate at the fire, and pleasantly shading his face with it. Mr. Redlaw stopped in his walking, 
and an expression of interest appeared in him. "'What I always say myself, sir, she will do it. There's a motherly feeling in Mrs. Williams' breast that must and will have went.' "'What has she done?' "'Why, sir, not satisfied with being a sort of mother to all the young gentlemen that come up from a variety of parts, to attend your courses of lectures at this ancient foundation, it's surprising how Stone Cheney catches the heat this frosty weather, to be sure. Here he turned the plate, and cooled his fingers. Well, said Mr. Redlaw. That's just what I say myself, sir, returned Mr. William, speaking over his shoulder, as if in ready and delighted assent. That's exactly where it is, sir. There ain't one of our students but appears to regard Mrs. William in that light. Every day, right through the course, they puts their heads into the lodge, one after another, and have all got something to tell her, or something to ask her. Swidge is the appellation by which they speak of Mrs. William in general, among themselves, I'm told. But that's what I say, sir, better to be called ever so far out of your name, if it's done in real liking, than to have it made ever so much of, and not cared about. What's a name for? To know a person by. If Mrs. William is known by something better than her name, I allude to Mrs. William's qualities and disposition, never mind her name, though it is Swidger, by rights. Let him call her Swidge, Widge, Bridge, Lord, London Bridge, Blackfriars, Chelsea, Putney, Waterloo, or Hammersmith Suspension, if they like. The close of this triumphant oration brought him and the plate to the table, upon which he half laid and half dropped it, with a lively sense of its being thoroughly heated, just as the subject of his praises entered the room, bearing another tray and a lantern, and followed by a venerable old man with long grey hair. Mrs. William, like Mr. William, was a simple, innocent-looking person, in whose smooth cheeks the cheerful red of her husband's official waistcoat was pleasantly repeated but whereas Mr. William's light hair stood on end all over his head, and seemed to draw his eyes up with it in an excess of bustling readiness for anything, the dark brown hair of Mrs. William was carefully smoothed on, and waved away under a trim tidy cap, in the most exact and quiet manner imaginable. Whereas Mr. William's very trousers hitched themselves up at the ankles, as if it were not in their iron-gray nature to rest without looking about them, Mrs. William's neatly flowered skirts, red and white, like her own pretty face, were as composed and orderly, as if the very wind that blew so hard out of doors could not disturb one of their folds. Whereas his coat had something of a fly-away and half-off appearance about the collar and breast, her little bodice was so placid and neat, that there should have been protection for her, in it, had she needed any, with the roughest people. Who could have had the heart to make so calm a bosom swell with grief, or throb with fear, were flutter with the thought of shame. To whom would its repose and peace not have appealed against disturbance, like the innocent slumber of a child? Punctual, of course, Milly, said her husband, relieving her of the tray, or it wouldn't be you. Here's Mrs. William, sir. He looks lonelier than ever to-night, whispering to his wife, as he was taking the tray, and ghostlier altogether. Without any show of hurry or noise, or any show of herself even, she was so calm and quiet, Milly set the dishes she had brought upon the table, Mr. William, after much clattering and running about, having only gained possession of a butter-boat of gravy, 
which he stood ready to serve. End of chapter 1, part 1